This is the final week, and we've been exploring the core doctrines of Christianity. We've been looking at what it is that Christians have believed for thousands of years through history. What is it that Christians believe? What is it that Christians believe, and how does it shape our life? And why have we been doing this? Some of you maybe have, uh, maybe it's your first Sunday, or you've been coming for just a little bit, or maybe you've been here the whole time, but why have we been exploring this together? Why have we been exploring these beliefs? And it's important because some of you are exploring Christianity. And so it's helpful to know what is it that Christians believe. Some of you have been Christians for a long time or maybe for a, a certain period, and, and yet it's easy to miss what it is that Christians actually believe. What is it that we believe? I showed you at various points studies and surveys that have been done that show that even though someone may claim to be a Christian, it doesn't mean that they actually hold orthodox Christian belief that people have believed for thousands of years that the various creeds and confessions of the historic church have said this is what Christianity is. Christianity is not something we can just make up. There is content to what it is. And so we've been exploring what are the Christian beliefs so that we may deepen in our beliefs, so that it may shape our life. And so that for those of you exploring, you can know here is what Christianity is. Now, a big question that we have, all of us have at various points in our life and that the world around us has is what happens when we die? What happens when we die? What you believe about that question affects so much. It affects how you live your life now. It affects if you are afraid or hopeful for the future. It affects even the way we relate to one another. It affects how we believe our purpose and our plans are to be focused on this earth. It affects a lot of things. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of eschatology, looking at just the end times and I announced to you this very specific date Jesus was coming back and who the Antichrist was. So if you want, you can go listen to that sermon. Not really. But today we're looking at the end also, but in a more personal sense of what happens to us when we die. What happens to people when we die? And here is the reality. All of us will die. All of us will die. And this is the average life expectancy in the U.S., 76.1 years, which we are below comparable countries that have 82.4 years. So maybe when you get to 75, you should move somewhere else and you'll be able to last a little bit longer. Now, obviously, that's just an average. Some of you are like, hi, I've blown past that. And congratulations. Uh, but <clears throat> all of us will eventually die. We will die. That's not something we think about often. But <clears throat> each of us will die. How do we make sure that we are ready for that day? What does Christianity teach about our death and what happens and, and really how to live prepared for that? Your view of your death and your view of what the Bible teaches about death will shape your life now. So what does the Bible say about death? What happens when we die? I want to give you three truths, looking at the Bible's teaching around death, but really presenting these three truths in a way that would say this. What are the three truths we need to know to be ready to die? What are the three truths that we need to know to be ready to die? Now, here's the first one. 
you have one life and you will die. That's the first truth that you need to know to be ready to die. You have one life and you will die. God is life. All over the Bible speaks about Jesus being life, about the Father giving life. We have a God of life. Death is not natural. That's not the way that things were intended to be. That is the first penalty of sin is that death enters into the world in every different level, spiritual and emotional and physical and natural and all of it. God is a God of life, which means this. You don't have to be stoic about death. You don't have to just kind of think, ah, it doesn't matter. Everybody dies. You don't have to be cynical. You don't have to not care and be unfeeling. Death is not natural. It is not the way that God designed things to be. But through sin, we all will face death. The Bible says that therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Death has spread to all people. It came into the world through sin. And now we live in this unnatural condition of death. The Bible also says, for he must reign, Jesus, until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, which means we will experience death on this earth until that final enemy is abolished. But our present experience here will be death. It is inescapable. doesn't matter how much broccoli you eat. It doesn't matter how much exercise you do. It doesn't matter how many air filters you have. It doesn't matter what you do. We will die. It is inescapable. There's things you can do to prolong your life, obviously. I'm not encouraging you to, you know, smoke five packs of cigarettes a day or something. Ah, who cares? Down with broccoli, up with smoking. That's not what I'm saying. But it is ultimately inescapable. You read the news. Oftentimes, even though we don't know them, a certain celebrity dies and we're very sad. Like, oh, but he was so funny. Or, oh, but they were so great. And, oh, their music was so excellent. Or you see a celebrity, they seem immortal, but they have all the money in the world. They have all the physicians and people around them, and, and yet they die. And we see people that are young. I've done funerals for infants. I've done funerals for young friends. I've, I mean, we, we see people that are way too young to die. And we see people that live a mature, aged life, and they die. Death is inescapable. Some of you have felt this, right? Most of us, probably by this point in our life, have felt the death of family and friends, and it's painful, and we don't have to be stoic about it. Death is unnatural, and yet it does come to everyone. You have one life, and you will die. You cannot beat death. And then what? Is there another life you get after the life that you have now? My point here is you have one life and you will die. And the reason I phrase it that way is because it's easy for some people, and in a room this size, some of you believe this, that you have one life and then you will have another life. Maybe you will have that life in purgatory. 
you will die, and then you will have a stage where you kind of have a second chance to decide what your future will hold. Or maybe you believe you'll come back as a ghost. You have unfinished business or to haunt people that pissed you off or I don't, I don't know. I want one week as a ghost. That's it. Just one week. Give me one week as a ghost. I can travel super fast, get it done, everything I want to get done. And by getting done things, I mean bothering some certain people. I have a list, my ghost list. Some people have a bucket list. I have a ghost list. <clears throat> we'll see what Jesus says. <clears throat> or some people believe that you will reincarnate. You will die, and then you will come back. As a matter of fact, uh, 30% of Christian adults believe that you will come back and live another life. So this is why I talk about these things. That's why I say some of you in this room believe this. Some people maybe believe you'll come back as an angel. Oh, sorry, I gave it away. Some people maybe believe you'll come back as an angel. Some people, I, I, I saw recently kind of a, a saying when someone died saying, I'm not dead, I'm in the trees, I'm in the wind, I'm in, you know, I'm in all these different things. The Bible says to all of those, no. You have one life and you will die. This is how Hebrews says it. You've never seen this verse before. Here's what it says. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, it is appointed for people to die once. And after is judgment, not after his ghost, not after his reincarnation, not after is you are in the trees and the wind and all around us and we sense your presence or you are a ghost. It is appointed for people to die once. And after this is judgment. You have one life and you will die. That is what the Bible teaches. Which means what? Many people do believe this, whether you're Christians or not. Many people believe this. I mean, basically, you see YOLO in there, right? So you only one life. But you've only got one life, right? So many people believe that. And the answer to that is, so live it up. You've only got one life to live, so live it up. The classic Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Were Dying. Right? He gets this diagnosis, and so then it's, I went skydiving, and I w went Rocky Mountain climbing, and I rode a bull, and I, I did all this stuff, and I went fishing. and I, it's, You've got one life, so live it up. That's often the answer that is given to us for the hard reality that we will die, and we only have one life. But here's the thing. You can climb all the Rocky Mountains, ride all the bulls, Go skydiving, and guess what? You still die. It still comes. You have one life, and you will die. So what does it mean? Here's what the Bible tells us. It says, because we have one life and we will die, we need wisdom. Psalm 90 says, our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even today, that's pretty, pretty close to accurate. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Now, on that reflection, he says, teach us to number our days carefully 
so we may develop wisdom in our hearts. That's the Bible's answer. We will die. Even the best of our years are often struggle and sorrow, and then they're over. We experience God's wrath in the sense that there is death in this world now, and so what do we do? It doesn't end in the psalm saying, so God, help us to live it up. It says, teach us to number our days that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Live with wisdom. That's, that, that's where we go with this. You only have one life and you will die. So what? So ask God to teach you to number your days and live with wisdom. And I see some younger people in this room and some older people in this room. When do you start doing this? Immediately. This isn't something you do when all of a sudden you hit a midlife crisis or when you retire. You, we are called to realize from the beginning, this is all I've got. So God, help me to live with wisdom. Yesterday, I took my kids uh, and we walked around a cemetery because we like to do fun things on Saturday. It's our family day. <laughs> and... Uh, and we walked through the tombstones. And I just told them, I just want everybody to be quiet and just reflect. What do you think? What comes to your mind? Everybody had different thoughts. One of the thoughts that, that I had just looking at all these tombstones is some of these from the 1800s of their birthday. We will be forgotten. You know, who... How often do you go visit your great-great-grandpas? You don't probably, I mean, go back three greats. You probably don't even know their name unless you're named after them. You'll be forgotten very quickly. And so sometimes that could be depressing of like, oh, man, my life, what's my legacy? But the reality is it's, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It's okay to be forgotten. What matters is just I want to live with wisdom. What my headstone represents, I want it to say, he lived a wise life. He, he brought his life to God and said, God, who cares if anyone remembers me? Who cares if I lived it up? Who cares if my bucket list was crossed off? But I, I brought my life to God and said, God, help me to live with wisdom. That is what the Bible teaches us. You've got one life and you will die. Are you bringing that to him and saying, so God, however many years I've got, let me live it with wisdom. That's the first thing, the first truth that you need to know to be ready to die. And it's really the first starting point of the Bible's doctrine around death is that death has entered into the world. It's unnatural and we all will die. You don't get a second, third, fourth purgatory, reincarnating, wind, grass, chance. It's over. Second truth. After death, you will be judged. After death, you will be judged. I showed you this already, but, um, oh, excuse me, here's something. When we look at what happens after death in the U.S., 73% of U.S. adults believe in heaven, 62% believe in hell, that's all. So obviously people are a little too optimistic, first of all. <clears throat> but even within Protestant circles, 93% believe in heaven. I don't know what the other 7% are hoping in. 80, only 84% believe in hell. But generally speaking... Most people actually believe in a heaven and a hell. What happens when we die? The Bible says after death you will be judged. It's not just that you'll be absorbed into nothingness. Sometimes people think that. 
It's not just that you will go. It's not just nothing. It's not just dissipation. And it's not contrary to how you see a little bit of the, most people believe in a heaven and a hell, but it's leaned toward the heaven side. It's not you will go to a better place. Maybe. But the Bible teaches that after death, you will be judged. Now, judgment means not that everything goes one direction. Judgment means there's different directions. And the Bible gives us two paths. For those that are not Christians, the Bible says that they will experience punishment in their judgment. We can think, well, I was generally a good person, or this person was generally a good person. They lived a good life. Can think maybe sometimes on the opposite end, man, people get away with stuff. It's not fair that this person lived this way and and then either their life is just done, but they've left all this damage, or that their life is done, and now they just get to go to a better place. We can, we can think that's not fair. Sometimes people believe, well, even if they're not a Christian, aren't there different paths to salvation? Jesus is for Christians, and Buddha is for Buddhists, and Muhammad is for Islam. And aren't there different paths to salvation even again within Christians, 58% of Christians say many religions can lead to eternal life in heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. There are two different paths. The Bible teaches anyone who believes in him, in Jesus, anyone who believes in Jesus is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe that's in Jesus, not in God, not in some generic spirit, not in, the, not in heaven, not in the afterlife, anyone, this is talking about Jesus. Anyone who does not believe in Jesus is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light, talking about Jesus, has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. The Bible says there is judgment and condemnation for those that do not believe in Jesus. That's so important. It's not that there's judgment and condemnation for those that live a bad life, though that's true also, but that's why if somebody says, well, I lived a pretty good life, okay, did you believe in Jesus? Jesus' condemnation and judgment is for those that do not come to him that reject him. Jesus teaching says this, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. These are the words of Jesus. Sometimes people think, well, Jesus was such a nice guy and why can't we be more like Jesus? Not that God of the Old Testament. How about Jesus? He was cool. He had long hair. He's got a TV show that's popular. You know, he's, uh, he's awesome. Jesus says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Romans 2 says, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. The Bible often talks about the day of wrath or the day of the Lord or the day of judgment when God's righteous judgment is revealed. There is a day of 
God's righteous judgment, God's righteous condemnation. I already showed you this verse, but it says it's pointed for people to die once. And after this, judgment. That's what comes. After death, you will be judged. Now, let me share with you something else that not a lot of people know. Not a lot of people, um, I'm not saying like this is some unique teaching that I have, but it's not something that uh, Christians are often as familiar with, but it's that there are, all, there are also degrees of judgment. There are degrees of punishment. You might think, is it really fair that Hitler and this person who did live a normal, pretty good life get the same punishment? The Bible says all are sinners, so all deserve judgment. Whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned, but it's not all the same degrees of punishment. Sorry, I, I skipped this one, but it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then Jesus says this, truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable, that's degrees, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, a town that rejected him while he was there. So more tolerable and less tolerable. Sodom and Gomorrah from the Old Testament received God's judgment and punishment. And Jesus says, this town that, he is, that has rejected him while he was here preaching, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. That's degrees. Other places, similar. I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is giving these degrees of judgment. It doesn't mean that, oh, well, sweet, in hell, I'll just be sitting in a lazy boy chair, and that's not what that means. But there are degrees of punishment. Again, in Revelation, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, the books of judgment. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. People are judged according to their works. So there are degrees of judgment, degrees of punishment. But after death, you will be judged. After death, judgment will come. The Bible teaches that if we reject Jesus, we are already experiencing condemnation and will experience the day of God's wrath. That is the path for those that have rejected Jesus, which we call that place of judgment. Judgment happens. The place of judgment is hell. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. So again, if we have this wrong picture of Jesus as he was just kind of floating around loving everyone, he talked about hell often. Jesus again says, then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So in this, this is a really helpful passage that sums up some of the Bible's teaching much of the Bible's teaching on hell, that first of all, it is depart from me. Hell is separation from God. Depart from me. Anything good in your life is because of God. 
So to be absent from his presence is as bad as it gets. Depart from me. That's really the essence of hell. Separation from God. The Bible teaches that hell is eternal, conscious torment. Eternal fire. Not the fire lasts a little bit, then it's gone. Not some people might teach what's called annihilationism, which means that uh, you experience, you die, and then you're just kind of wiped out. So you don't have to experience eternal conscious torment. The Bible and Jesus says it is eternal fire. Eternal. Hell lasts forever. Forever being cursed. Forever experiencing God's punishment. Forever being separated from him. Second Thessalonians says, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God. Again, this is, it's not just they broke the Ten Commandments. It is that, but it's also very God-centered. Those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Eternal conscious torment, eternal separation from God. This is what the Bible teaches that hell is. Sometimes people have this idea of hell as a place where Satan is king. I, I grew up reading these cartoons called Far Side. And it says, you know, we're, we're just not reaching that guy because he's just kind of happy as he's you know, shoveling coal or whatever. And you see these demon creatures are ruling, right? They're the ones in charge and their slaves are kind of doing their bidding. Sometimes that's the image of hell we have. But in the passages I just showed you, it says Jesus is the one that's ruling. And hell is for the angels and the demons and those that do not believe. It is a place of eternal punishment where Jesus is the one that judges. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the one that rules. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one executing the punishment. After death, you will be judged. Now, here's what I know. This is a doctrine that often people do not like. And I don't say that like, but I love it. I'm not saying it like that. It's a doctrine, though, that people don't like. Don't like so much that many Christians actually say, I don't believe in that. Don't like it so much that many Christians actually say, there's got to be some other way, some other path, some other religion. It's a doctrine that if you're not a Christian, it might be one of the biggest issues you have with Christianity, that you struggle with, that you say, how could a good, loving God send people to hell? How could, and we don't like it, don't understand it. It's very challenging and difficult for us whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. It's not one of the most popular doctrines that people say, what do you love about God? Oh, I love that he created hell. If somebody said that, you might be scared of them. So it is a doctrine that we are often uncomfortable with. And there's a lot that I could say around that, but I want to just tell you two things. The first is, even though we are uncomfortable with this doctrine, 
all of us long for justice. We long for justice in our world. There's so much brokenness in our world. Some of you have experienced, many of you have experienced personal injustices, things done to you, abuse done to you, wrongs that haven't been righted. And when we look at conflict in the world, when we look at situations, it's hard to sort them out. It's hard to say, what is the right answer? What's the right thing? What's the wisest judgment that could be done? We long for justice. We long for judgment. And yet we know we're inadequate to bring it about. Our justice system is inadequate. Our wisdom is inadequate. Sometimes people get off that shouldn't. Sometimes they get a lighter punishment or something. I mean, it's so hard to actually see justice happen here on earth. The doctrine of hell and the doctrine of judgment says, what if we can entrust that to a God that is all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful? What if he does know more than us? What if his love is greater than our love? What if his wisdom is greater? I want to entrust it to him. Not that we don't ever work for justice here. Not that we don't ever try to see good laws made here. But I think he's better than me. I think he's better than you. I think he's better than our government. I think he's better than nations. I, I think if somebody can bring the right justice in the right way, it's him. We long for justice. God says, I will do it perfectly. And the more that we get to know him, and see him and see his character, the more, even if there's things we don't understand, even if there's things that are hard for us, even if there's things that are challenging, we can say, I trust that you're going to be able to do it better than we did. That's the first thing. The second thing is sometimes people will say, how could a good, loving God send people to hell? But the reality is this. Nobody, and this might sound weird at first, but nobody's in hell that doesn't want to be. Here's what I mean by that. If we live our life saying, I reject God, I reject Jesus, I don't want 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 Jesus, hell is the place where you will get exactly what you wanted. Hell is the place where you will be separated from Jesus forever. So we can kind of have this idea like, well, it's just good and bad, but life isn't just about good and bad. It's about who are you in relation to Jesus. And if you've lived your whole life saying, I don't want Jesus, I think it's C.S. Lewis that said, at the end of the day, either we will say to God, thy will be done, or God will say to us, thy will be done. If we don't want Jesus, God will say, okay. You can be separate from him forever. So what does this doctrine help us do? How does it help us? Well, two things. First, it helps us forgive other people. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. There's some verses I only have memorized in the King James. So, saith, you know. 
just sounds better, you know? Vengeance is mine, says God. That's just like, huh? That doesn't have any power. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But you know what that does if you believe that? You don't have to exact vengeance on everybody. If you believe there is a just judge and he will make things right, we don't have to go about executing all of our justice on people. It allows a forgiveness. It allows a release. It allows a rest. Secondly, it should lead us to evangelism, meaning telling other people about Jesus. I have seen those, seen two different atheists say two different things. One atheist who says, you don't believe in Jesus. You don't, excuse me, you don't believe in hell. You Christians, you don't actually believe in hell. Because if you did, you'd be telling everybody. It's like, well, that should be convicting. If we do believe in hell, it should lead us to evangelism. And another atheist that I heard say, I'm so thankful for Christians that evangelize me. He said, because what it tells me is that they love me because they really believe I'm going to hell. And how, how hateful do you have to be to somebody to not tell them? So he's an atheist. He's saying, I don't agree with them, but it shows me they love me. Both are really saying the same thing from a different angle. The doctrine of hell, the doctrine of judgment should lead us, if you are a Christian, to say, I need to tell people about Jesus so that they've come to know him and love him and want to be with him forever. God is patient, and he gives us now opportunity to help other people come to know him. So let me just say this. If you're not a Christian, I appeal to you. Come to Jesus. You don't have to live rejecting him. You don't have to live ignoring him. He died to save you from a death that's a life apart from him. He died to give you life with him forever. Every sin forgiven, his righteousness given to bring you into life with him forever. You don't have to live in that. He wants you. You can receive his forgiveness, his grace. You can receive him. For Christians, you will be judged also. After death, you will be judged. Christians will not be judged in a punishment way. You will be judged, but you will not be judged in a punishment way. You will be judged in a way that is looking at your life and God rewards us based on our life. The Bible says, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? We will all, he's talking to Christians, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So Christian, you will stand before the judgment seat of God, but not for punishment because that's already been taken care of on Jesus. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, Every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable that ends saying this. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns, a reward. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns, reward. 2 Corinthians says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body. 
whether good or evil. I could give you other passages, but the Bible speaks that all of us will be judged. Christians will, don't have to worry about any punishment. That's already been settled by Jesus. He's already received any punishment that you could ever receive in the death of Jesus for you. But we will stand before his judgment and receive rewards for the way that we've lived our life. There are degrees of rewards that Jesus hands out, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Repaid for the various things in our life. Now, that's not, again, a doctrine that's often taught, but just like there's degrees of punishment in hell, there are degrees of reward that God gives. Now, that probably opens up a lot of questions, like, what are the rewards? Like, oh, you get to live in a cinnamon roll factory. I'm sorry, you are... You know, you're the horse manure shoveler in heaven. Like, I, I don't know, you know, it's heaven, but it's still horse shoveling. You know, I, I don't know. No one will be unhappy. We know that. But there are degrees of reward that he gives, which should help lead us to good works in our life. And it should also encourage you that where you are not repaid in this life, God sees where you are not repaid, where you are not recognized, where you are not noticed, where it seems like the things that you do here don't get the things that you felt like it should deserve, God will repay you. Your life here matters. Are you using it the way he would want you to? After death, you will be judged. Two paths. And then finally... For Christians, death is entrance into a glorious future. This is a beautiful truth that we can rest in. For Christians, death is entrance into a glorious future. When you die, if you're a Christian, I'm just speaking to Christians now. When you die, you will immediately be with Jesus. Immediately. Jesus on the cross said this to the thief next to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, immediately. You don't have to wait. It's not soul sleep, if you've heard of that, where you sleep for like 10,000 years and then wake up one day. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul says, in fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. As soon as you are away from your body, you're not a ghost. You're not reincarnated. In fact, it's better. You are home with the Lord. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Saying, if I'm going to live here on this earth, it's for Jesus, and I want it to be fruitful, I want it to be wise, I want it to matter. But I know that when I die, it's better. I get to be with him immediately. So the Bible says, for the Christian, death is entrance into a glorious future, which means this, when those that you know and love who are Christians die, you can be and will be sad. Because death is not natural. And we will grieve and say, man, we don't get to have them anymore. But we're not sad for them. 
which is why we, we don't grieve in the same way. We can grieve and be sad for our loss, but we also don't grieve like those that don't know Jesus. We also rejoice saying they are having the best day of their life. They're, as soon as they die, they're saying, oh, yes, I'm so glad I'm dead, you know? They're thrilled. When we die, we go immediately to be with him, which means we don't have to despair when those that we love die. They're Christians. It also means we don't have to live in fear of our death. We don't have to live in fear. It's a powerful hope. We will gain. It's not just a better place. We'll be with a better person. And the Bible also teaches around this glorious future the word glorification, which has different aspects of it. Glorification can mean our body being all that it was intended to be, a supernatural new body. It can have to do with the creation itself being glorified one day. It can have to do with our completed sanctification that we're no longer sinning anymore. Here's some things where it talks about this. It showed you this verse uh, close to the beginning of the series. In the golden chain of salvation, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Dear friends, I love this verse. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That one day you will finally be like Jesus, fully. You'll never have to worry, man, I'm not as patient as Jesus. I'm not as self-controlled as Jesus. I'm not as joyful as Jesus. I'm not as kind as Jesus. I'm not, I'm not as much like Jesus as I want to be. One day, you will be like him because you'll finally see him as he is. No longer dim, no longer clouded. You will see him and your heart will worship him and that worship will change you fully the same way that your worship now changes you in degree, in part. You will see him and you will become like him. What a day that you'll never have to worry about your sin, your temptation, your struggle anymore. What you will be has not yet appeared, but it will. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan with ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Your body will finally be the body you were meant to have. Not just your soul, not just your spiritual maturity, your body. I was up this morning for a couple hours from four to six or so, and then woke up another half hour later. I woke up, I wake up, I'm not saying this for self-pity. I, I wake up most days, not with an alarm, but with back pain. That's what wakes me up. And I hate it. And some of you in your 20s are like, what's he talking about? What's back pain? But... And some of you know way more than I know. But that day, the older you get, the more that, or, or the sicker you get. Sometimes, you know, you could be young and sick too. You just go, man, I can't wait till I have a new body. A body, yeah, so there we go. We got some amens, for, <laughs> right? The older our church gets, the louder those amens will get, you know. <laughs> Amen! 
again. You know, that's, it might sound more like that. but <clears throat> The redemption of our bodies, that's so beautiful. Your body will be everything it was designed to be. Perfect hearing, no food allergies, perfect sight, perfect back, 12-pack abs. You know, you'll be everything you were meant to be. Some of you are almost there. Ten, you know, you're almost there. Glorious redemption body. No disease. No aging. No hurt. Powerful, healthy. That, I mean, use that truth if you need it. I know you don't have it now, but you use that and just go, man, God, this weakness reminds me of the glorious future that you will give to me. Use it to let you long for heaven. And not just our bodies, but also creation. It says creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. You see, when sin entered into the world, yes, our physical bodies were messed up, but the world around us was messed up. We've got earthquakes and earthquakes. Well, those are good. Earthquakes are good. Earthquakes and hurricanes and tornado cakes and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? It's a funnel cake, right? We got all this broken stuff in the world. And the Bible says that one day creation itself will finally be set free from decay. And there's the absence of the negative, but also think about this. I don't know what the most beautiful place you've ever been to. I love Rocky Mountain National Park. I love Grand Canyon, Yosemite, these places you go to, and they're beautiful, right? You go, wow. But you know what? It's actually in the bondage of decay. What will the Grand Canyon look like in all of its glory that it was originally supposed to have? What will the best sunrise and sunset you've ever seen look like without decay? What will the foods that the earth produces that we enjoy? I love a good nectarine. Oh, man. What will that taste like without decay? The difference between, if you've ever had rotten fruit on accident, hopefully, you, you accidentally bit into, you know, a grape that wasn't good or, and, ugh. The difference between a decayed grape and a great grape is so small compared to the distance between a great grape and a heaven grape. <laughs> you think that you've tasted a decayed grape. You've actually only tasted a more decaying grape, which means a heaven grape will blow your mind. That's why we won't need drugs or anything like that in heaven. We'll just take a grape and be like, whoa. I'm not saying you need drugs now, just to clarify. Like, yes, exactly, but for now. <laughs> it's not what I was saying. Don't misquote me. A beautiful creation. Whatever we have now is a shadow. You've seen your shadow, right? It kind of looks like you, but not really. This is a shadow of the beauty of what God will do. And I don't know what you think about when you think about heaven. 
oftentimes people think about this. If I just go, if you just Google heaven and go to Google images, a lot of the first kind of images that pop up are something like this. And you probably don't know if that's a guy or a girl. It could be either, but this is heaven, right? All of a sudden you get wings, a dress, and clouds. It seems pretty stupid. And that's not what the Bible says heaven is. What the Bible says heaven is, is a new earth. New heavens and a new earth, meaning this earth reshaped, reformed to be what God originally intended it to be. So there's all sorts of places in the Bible I could go to, but Revelation is one of the best. And it says, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb. Even this, that means there's going to be various cultures still there. Not everyone just whitewashed in a white dress. Everyone bringing the best of their culture and their nation and their tribe and their language coming and celebrating Jesus in multiple languages. And I'm assuming we'll all understand them or but they will still be distinct and will worship him together. And this talks, this is such a great scene. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth that comes down. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And it doesn't necessarily mean he destroys them and creates new, but that they're reshaped and reformed. The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. God will be with us forever. And he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. This is an amazing image. And if you think about even just that it says it's a city... That's not clouds. What do cities have? They've got buildings. They've got food. They've got streets. There's houses and people doing things and people hanging out. And I, I could give you more and more and more verses, but I mean, the Bible talks about all sorts of things that will be in heaven. Streets and animals and Probably talking animals, by the way. I could, I'll tell you more about that later if you want to <laughs> talk. But mo there are talking animals in heaven, just so you know. That's, that's a fact. <clears throat> you, just email me. I'll show you. <clears throat> but it's a city. Jesus talks about going and preparing a place for us. It's a city. It's a place. It's not clouds. It's, it's this world, but remade new. We get to enjoy a perfect city with God and no pain. That's as good as it gets. It means uninhibited joy and communion with one another in Him. It means the best that you've ever known of life, the best that you've ever known of life, best vacation you ever had, the best dinner with friends you ever had, the best, the, the best of life, the best of him that you've ever known, the best Sunday service or the best time you know, at camp, or the, be the best of God you've ever known. Shadows compared to this. Uninhibited 
joy, and fellowship. Jesus has more for you than you could ever imagine. More for you than you could ever imagine. As J.R. Tolkien said, really stealing from Revelation, but all the sad things come untrue. And all the beautiful things become, this is not Tolkien, this is me, and all the beautiful things become more true. That's what awaits us. How does this doctrine help us? How does this doctrine help us shape our life here? The doctrine of heaven and a glorious future. How does it shape our life now? Because that's part of what I'm trying to show you is three truths to get ready for dying. That you have one life and you will die and after death you will be judged and for Christians death is entrance into a glorious future. How does that help us get ready for death? How does that help us now? Have you ever had a, a job or maybe even in living in Denver or a certain place and you felt like, you know, I'm only going to be here for a short time. I don't know how much I want to invest. Maybe you get a job and you're like, I know I'm only going to have this job for a year, so I don't know how much I really want to get to know the coworkers. I, I just want to get my paycheck. I don't know how much I really want to try to go to all these trainings. Or I'm just going to be here for a short time. Or maybe you've moved somewhere and felt like, you know, I'm only going to be in Denver for a year. I don't really want to get too invested. I'm not going to buy a home. I'm not going to, I'm only going to be here for a short time. I don't want to get too in deep, get in too deep, get too invested. I don't want to do that. The Bible says that really about this earth. It says, you will be here, but don't get invested too deeply in a wrong way. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Set your treasure on Jesus. Treasure him more than anything. Set your treasure on heaven in the glorious future that you have. That leads you to not trying to store up for yourself treasures on this earth. And, and those treasures could be tangible, physical things. They could be experiences. They could be all sorts of things, accomplishments. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't get too invested. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Live for that day. Jesus says things like, seek ye first the kingdom of God. There's another King James. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Everything else will be added to you. Don't get too invested. Don't let your heart be too attached. Live for then, which increases your joy now. Because if your treasure is set here, you know what happens? You're only happy if you get the treasure here. You're only as happy as you are able to store up. But if your treasure is there, it doesn't really matter what happens here. You know that a future glorious inheritance awaits you. Which, are, which of these are you doing? Which of these does life look more like? Jesus is encouraging, commanding, trying to give us a vision of something better. You have something that is unshakable, eternal, that you could build your joy in, that you could treasure now, every, 
Every Advent season, we do something as a church called Live to Give. I'm just going to intro this here, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But it really goes, the reason I decided to intro this today instead of next week, which would have been normal, is because it goes so in line with this glorious future. And we talk about what it looks like for us to be a generous church. Jesus says this small little statement that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's such a powerful statement. So small, so pithy, and yet so powerful if we take it to heart. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to store up our treasures in heaven than it is on earth. If we take that statement seriously, it has the power to radically reshape our life and our church and our city and our world. What if you believe that? Truly. What if you believe that? It's more blessed to give than to receive. What if we actually took that to heart? God wants to bless you. And the pathway that he gives is actually not so get, 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 get. But the pathway he gives is generosity. He says this is the pathway to blessing, to the blessed life. So we always take this season and focus on those words and use it as an opportunity to take seriously that claim, to enter into that together. So there's always these five steps that we encourage people, and I'll talk about these more, but I just want to show them to you, to ask God to give us a fresh joy in our giving, to start giving if you're not giving, to reconsider your giving. Maybe you've gotten raises, promotions, different jobs. Maybe you've just matured more, to help accomplish our giving goal towards the end of the year. Every year we have a giving goal that enables us to do two things. One, to just continue to do ministry here, but also we always support uh, Churches in Hard Places, which is an organization starting churches in the hardest places in the world, and we've given them various amounts. Uh, this year we are hoping, wanting to give them $10,000 to start churches in the hardest places in the world. And actually we'll have the director for Churches in Hard Places preaching on December 10th, which I'm really excited about. But we want to raise above and beyond our normal budget, $40,000 extra, above and beyond. And then to serve if you're not serving practically on Sundays. This is what it means to live, to give, to take seriously Jesus' words that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And part of what we do during this time... Oh, oh go back. Stop. I have to apologize for that video first, but uh, part, of, part of what we do during this time is explore, um, explore our ministry as a church to church planting. So we give tens of thousands of dollars to church planting around the world and locally. We give tens of thousands of dollars. 10% of our budget goes to starting new churches through Acts 29 and Churches in Hard Places goes to starting new churches. So Acts 29, for those of you that are not familiar, is a church planting network that we're a part of. Uh, Dion and I were just at uh, the conference this week with church planters from all over the place. I think the furthest one came from, do you remember where he was from? He got a prize. Romania, I think it was from. Uh, another guy from Africa that I met also, and people, and then there was, you know, people from California, which is another country also, you know. So people were from all over the world. And uh, Sarah and I, my wife and I serve on the assessment team, assessing new church planters. I lead a cohort. We're, we're involved with Acts 29, to help see new churches be started. 
And that's part of what we focus on during this time of live to give, that we want to be a generous church that's able to continue to do that, not just see our church grow and, and reach this city, but be a part of church planting, starting new churches across the world. Uh, so we usually show the video that Acts 29 always produces a video kind of for that year and just kind of highlight the work. Now, unfortunately, my apology to our church is that they asked me to do the video, so I know it's kind of a little weird. Uh, so, but it's the video that they made for other churches. They're just like, hey, who's this guy? For our church, I kind of feel like I have to apologize. Sorry that you're going to see me in this video. But I do want to show you the video that they made, so go ahead, and I'll come back. They're almost... In uh, 2022, they, they don't have the stats for 2023, but in 2022, Acts started, through Acts 29 started 61 new churches. There's 700 churches uh, across the world in 47 different countries in 31 languages. And last year it was reported that 8,496 people uh, came to know Jesus for the first time. Yeah. That's what we are a part of, and that's what we like to highlight during this season especially. Uh, we want to be a church that is living to give, a church that is, as Jesus said, not, not storing up our treasures on this earth, but storing up our treasures in heaven. We want to be a part of things that moths and rust and thieves do not destroy, but to be eternally minded. So those five steps that I gave you, that's what we're asking everybody to participate in. You'll hear more about this in the coming weeks, but asking you to step into that, enter into that. And also, we have we give these out every year, so if you've already read it, uh, don't, don't worry about it. Maybe just refresh it, but we always give out this book that's on our resource table called The Treasure Principle. It's just a really helpful book on what generosity looks like, and it's called The Treasure Principle in line with that verse that we just looked at from, from the Bible that talks about not storing up our treasure on this earth. So, you will die. We will all die. All of us. And the truth is, some of us will go quicker than we thought. Some of us might last longer than we thought. But we want to be ready. Whether it's tomorrow or 100 years from now with new medicines and technologies, we want to be ready for that day. We want to be ready. Whenever that comes and to live in light of the future that we have now. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And when we take communion, we are remembering some of the beautiful truths that we looked at. That Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us to secure our eternal future with him forever. To secure a physical, spiritual resurrection that we get to enjoy with him forever. We have one life and then we will die and we will be judged and for Christians we'll have a glorious future. Let that belief shape our life together now. As you take communion, remember Jesus' death and what he did to make it so there doesn't have to be any fear, there doesn't have to be any concern, there doesn't have to be any worry, there can just be hope and anticipation of what he will do. This is the last day of this series. Your belief will shape your life. We want to believe what God says. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for the reality that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to be scared of what will come. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to uh, be in turmoil about the future. Jesus, you have secured for us 
through your death, a beautiful future with you on a new earth and a new heaven forever. Thank you that we can live with confidence and hope in you and what you've done. Help us to let our lives be shaped accordingly, to live as a part of your mission and purposes here today. Continue to grow us and shape us around your truth, Jesus. In your name, pray. Amen.